0: You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show.
1: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
0: It's it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live.
2: Your guide on the side. What
0: creates higher trust for you and the people around you? This is The Matt Townsend Show.
1: Dr. Matt Townsend.
0: This morning we're talking about failure. Have you ever been there? Have you ever just blown it? Like majorly just blown it? Oh, the embarrassment, the shame, just the, the blow to your game and to your mindset. But the reality of failure, uh, it's everywhere. We all experience it. And uh, to some degree, you need to experience it if you want to be able to progress and to move on in life. Um, one of the reasons why we bring it up is because uh, we seem to be raising a generation of people that, that think that, you know, we ought not let our kids fail too much. The, the problem with that is that's not natural. You're supposed to fail. In fact, quite honestly, you better fail, right? Because failure would mean change. Failure means growth. Failure means it's time to figure something out. Wouldn't you need to have failure to actually know what success is? How many times have you seen uh, one of your children maybe had a really great team, an incredible baseball team or whatever, and they just kept winning and winning and winning and winning and winning. And then, you know, they get to a tournament and they get killed. And (laughs) these kids are not used to failure. But failure happens every single day. Uh, Think about the first time you played a sport and it was your chance to win the game on the free throw line. Did that ever happen? Ben, for example, in his dating life,
3: Nothing but failure, right, Ben? Oh, you have no idea.
0: No idea, right? No idea, wrong? So,
3: yeah, my dating life's horrible.
0: Really? Let's talk about it. Just for a minute, what... <sighs> yeah, right? You're breathing through your mouth again.
3: Oh, sorry. So, a little failure.
0: I mean, you're not failing dramatically, right? It's just a little failure. Three restraining
3: orders. Totally okay, yeah, that's failure. That's, boy... Really, I'm just trying to be nice, you know. Is the th- are the is that three different people? Um, or is that one person? No, you know, it's three been, different it's orders. It's been renewed. Okay, so wow. So one of them's been renewed one time, and then there's a separate one. Yeah, second yeah. one. Huh. We got a
0: yeah. That's weird. Maybe you're pushing too hard. Seems like really? you're pushing too
3: hard. I, I just thought like confidence was supposed to. <laughs> is
0: that what you do? You act confident, so confident oh. that you scare them.
3: I guess so. Yeah, like.
0: See, again, that's a perfect example, Ben. That's why we need failure. You know, the failure to be able to, you know, get a date should teach us something. And there are steps that we need, We should take to help us get through this. There are actual steps that we should learn to make sure that we're not, you know, always just failing. Four keys to learning from failure – by Dr. Guy Winch, who's been on the program two or three times. He uh, He's a blogger on Psychology Today and um, also uh, has this post that made it to Huffington Post, which is four keys to learning from your failure. Now, Ben, I want you to listen up because yes. we're going to use your dating examples as we go through this um, and also just, you know, the the police interventions, the tasing, the stuff like that. As, as a tool to help us through this. Uh, first key that Dr. Winch teaches us in his article, because failure is inherent, right? But there's usually going to be a breakdown that would cause a failure in, in a few areas. So the first area is your planning, right? So if you haven't, if you don't plan, if you don't prepare to plan, you no, know, if you fail
3: to prepare,
0: Then prepare to fail. That's the axiom.
3: But I I do plan.
0: Okay. So obviously, let's evaluate your planning. So for these dates that you – like you keep coming in and saying, I went – I had another date and she didn't show. Had another date and she didn't show. Had another date and she didn't show. So
3: you must not be planning very well. Well, I tell her specifically, drive yourself – to Moab, and I will meet you there.
0: Moab, which is hundreds and hundreds of miles away.
3: Yeah, but, like, she she okay. could probably find her way.
0: Well, yeah, but did you even... Does she even know you at this point?
3: Um, I mean, we sat next to each other a couple times in class. Okay, yeah. See,
0: you, you have to evaluate your planning, because it's A, you have to actually know the woman before she'll go to Moab with you. Okay. B... You usually don't like set up a date that's hundreds of miles away unless you really know each other. And so it usually would be better to pick her up, say, hey, let's drive together. Got a bunch of friends that will be down there. We can hang out. There will okay, be well, a place for the ladies and a place for the gentlemen.
3: What, what happens if you don't have a lot of friends that are going to be there?
0: Then we probably ought not be going to Moab with a lady. See, that's where you're losing it. So if we reevaluate your planning, then – any breakdown, you know, so for the team that didn't win the championship and they were all a little messed up because, boy, that defense that they faced in the championship game blew them away, then we probably didn't plan very well to have our kids ready for any defense. Right? Okay. So it's about a planning problem. So and we, we are seeing that that's what's happening to your dating. There's just a failure to plan. So planning, I'm going to. Mark that there, yeah. Planning—you have to spend more time thinking about who this person is. She has to actually know you. You probably ought to be on three or four dates before you take her to Moab.
3: Okay, so how how does she get to know me then? Okay, that would be that would be different. That would be your ex. That
0: would be your um, your execution.
3: So is that step number
0: two? That would be three. Then so oh. so once you have to you have to reevaluate your planning. Did we plan ahead? Then your preparation. Like did you did you date her enough? Did you have your head wrapped around this strongly enough? Were you in the right place? Do you have the communication skills? Do you have the ability to carry a conversation with somebody longer than, you know, 10 minutes? Cuz if you're going to Moab it's going to be a long time together. So failure is your inability to be prepared enough. Do you know who she is? Do you know what ladies like to talk about? Do you know what this lady pre- specifically likes to talk about?
3: Yeah. You so didn't I, prepare. I, well, I, I usually have like um, a, like a list of things I can talk about on the car. Right. Well, I guess if we're taking separate cars, I would never be able to use those. Yeah. Okay. So.
0: Well, and you don't even have a car. True. So, so preparation would say that that plan's not going to work. The minute you're like, "Okay, which car should I take?" You
3: don't have a car. So, if I buy if I buy a car, I should be good on the preparation side, right?
0: What would happen if it started raining in Moab, and you found out that there's going to be storms there all weekend? Do you have another plan? You need another. So, you got to be prepared. Because what happens if you guys? You know what happens if she does have you arrested? Can you post I'm, I'm bail? very
3: prepared on that front, though, on the rested side. I, I know what to do for that. So what, what
0: our good expert is teaching us is Dr. Guy Winch is that if you have a plan, then you got to make sure you're prepared to implement the plan. Right. You got to be able to deliver on the goods. You got to be able to do what needs to be done. So, again, the basketball team. Do we do we have a do we have a plan our own game plan Have I prepared my kids for what could be inevitably changes to the plan Have we prepared them with other schemes Have we prepared them You know Are they in good enough shape Are they mentally prepared Do we have all that done The next tool he teaches is your execution. So it's not enough to just have a really good plan and to have people prepared. Did they execute on what we said we were going to do? And see, if you don't, after the date, go back and learn this, Ben, then you're just going to keep having the same dates over and over. Yeah. Is that what you're noticing?
3: Yeah. I, so I, I like plan out what I'm going to say and like how I'm going to ask her out. But a lot of times it turns into German. And so I start talking to Ger- – Okay. Ger- no, so that's huge. Maybe, yeah, your execution's off. Maybe that's why she doesn't come because I tell her mm-hmm. to meet me in Moab yeah. in German.
0: Well, in fact, you got to watch out for that because – you're probably not executing because when you get nervous, you probably go all German on her.
3: That's, that's probably true. Does that make sense? And I mean, it's like it's not a bad thing to be German on her. But no. Like, if she, she's she German, hasn't...
0: no. But if yeah. she's not German, it's a okay. bad thing.
3: So speak in English. I, I've planned in English. Mm-hmm. You've prepared. Oh, yeah, okay.
0: we were going to do this whole thing in
3: English. Then the
0: next thing you know, you went off all German on her. Nothing wrong with German. Fantastic thing. But you got you to do better. And then last but not least, of course, after you've evaluated your execution of it is uh, you got to figure out what of everything we talked about you can control. And you can control your German. You can control your prep. You can control how much you know her. You can control these things. And then focus on what you can change, right? Focus on your variables that you can control. It's an easy plan. It's easy. Four keys to Learning from Your Failure by Dr. Guy Winch. Stick with us. We'll uh, continue the journey helping you live longer and love stronger, lead healthier lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, whether your child wants to be a doctor, a construction manager, engineer, or teacher, they will need a university degree to achieve their goals. But uh, the cost of college has been and continues to rise at an aggressive rate, So how do you help your children pay for college? Here to discuss is the founder of Invite Education, John Hupelo. Mr. Hupelo is the co-author of the book, Plan and Finance Your Family's College Dreams, a parent's step-by-step guide from pre-K to senior year. John Hupelo, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show.
2: Matt, good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: You bet. Great to have you on the show. Talk to us about... um, this uh the prices of of education they seem to just be going up exponentially and and we have a lot of people that i talk to even here at uh, byu that that wonder if it's worth it anymore financially
2: yeah that that that's exactly the right question and you're right over the last 10 years the cost of four-year private schools have gone up something like 53 percent and 20 years ago when people thought about what college was going to look like down the road the the Concern was well, it'll be twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars, and now we're talking about forty-three or forty-four thousand dollars for these high-end schools. But your question, you know, what comes out on the other side is what I think is is most important. And you you said at the top, if you're able to plan, uh, even uh, not not a ten-page strategic plan of how to get your kid into a college, but just plan a little bit while they're younger. Uh, set up a savings program, and then uh, when they're in high school really think about what will be affordable for your family. Uh, that's a, a much better path than uh, waking up in the middle of junior year saying, oh no, college is going to be here in, in a year from now, and, and how are we going to afford this? Mm. A planning will go a long way.
0: Especially because there's money available, and what I found is it's 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 easily available for these students, except a lot of the students don't have you know the financial savvy, let alone their parents, to know the impact of what these loans are going to do to them long term.
2: Well, that's exactly right, and there there are two parts of this equation that that families have to think about, and one is on the family side. You know, how can we save to put this uh, my my? And again, this is we're talking about. We really are talking about family dreams. Students get emotionally attached to particular schools. Their friends are there and parents want to do the best they can to help their children, and I was in this boat with my two girls, we want them to achieve their dreams. Uh, but what we don't want is that, that dream turn into a nightmare because they turned out to, to take too much debt in excess of what uh, they're able to earn and what they can pay. So again, as you're saying, the, the best course is to really step back, uh, take a deep breath, and try to be realistic about what's going to happen during this process and then look hard at some of the opportunities that are out there for the free money, grants, scholarships, um, local opportunities. Perhaps a student can work a little while they're in school uh, to make some of these payments. And the, the key is to try to keep the amount of debt that's borrowed an absolute minimum.
0: Yeah. Keep the debt down. Is there a um, – I mean, I guess, is there a benefit? It just seems to me that when my children are working for their education, they – seem to focus more on their education. And when I'm paying for their education, they seem to think it's kind of a free-for-all, like a buffet.
2: Well it, well buffet is right, and, and the, the the real point here um, is that it's better when everybody has skin in the game, yeah you know we hear all this political commentary these days about you know free free community college or free education. Well, the fact is uh, we should really think about what's affordable, and when you think about what's affordable, there are kids who are going to college today for free because they're able to get all those grants and the scholarships. Uh, but when you look at what comes out, you know there's great evidence out there that families uh, that have college graduates, those kids are earning about a million dollars more in their lifetime than if they had a high school degree. The average uh, student coming out now with a bachelor's degree is earning almost $50,000 a year. Mm. Uh, With no high school degree, they're earning about half that. So again, if you're smart about how much debt you're going to take on, you can make this a a really uh, terrific experience and put the student and the, now the young adult in a position where they can be really successful in life.
0: How do we know how much debt we should take on for higher ed?
2: Yeah, th- there's a, a great uh, thumbnail, uh, rule of thumb that folks use, and, I, and that is that for the, the most important thing, Matt, is to make sure that, that listeners are thinking about how much do you have to borrow for all four years? Lots of times they get in and say, well, this first year, and then I'll worry about the second and the third and the fourth year. But really think, again, realistically, about how much is it going to take for all four years. And one of those rules of thumb is that you shouldn't borrow more than what you think your first year earnings will be.
4: You
0: so mean overall? I'm
2: going to come out
0: Total. I'm you shouldn't borrow total? Uh, overall total for the four years more than your first year salary.
2: That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right.
0: That's a great rule. Like, so so no, if, I don't, if need, I don't need to borrow $50,000, if I'm going to be a school teacher and let's say I'll make $50,000 $50, my first year, let's say, um, then I probably ought not be spending $100,000 on my education.
2: You ought not do that. That's, that's exactly right. And you don't need to be a mathematician for, for that little rule of thumb. And, and that is well accepted across the industry as, as a great guidepost. Uh, for, for students to use a, as a, an opportunity to understand how much can I take on. And then the next question is, well, what does it mean if I can't go to that school of my dreams? And what I like to think about is maybe what's the dream? The mm-hmm. dream should be a, a, an education. Maybe not the dream should be at the high, highest cost school that then imperils me or my family or my parents when I'm looking down the road to see how I'm going to pay for it once I'm out of school.
0: Yeah, you bring up a great point about traditions. So many families have loyalty and tradition and history uh, connected to these schools that I want you to be in that sorority at this big school and sure it's going to cost more but it's will, we're all willing to I mean I guess in the end the the dream should be the education. Get the education right. that's going to further your career.
2: But that's that's exactly right, and the to me the the sad story is, and you read these in the newspapers all the time because, you know the, the 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 reality is that most kids, the majority of students, graduate from college and they're in great shape. They have an appropriate amount of debt, they can repay it, and they go through, and they're they're great citizens. We read, though, about the horror stories of the $100,000 in debt and the 20000 or $30,000 a year job, and folks believe that that's the reality of, of most experiences. And when, in fact, it's not, um, most students are doing just great, and families are doing better uh, the last five years in savings. Uh, programs like these 529 college savings programs, and uh, in Utah, you're blessed with some dr- absolutely terrific programs with the Utah Educational Savings Plan, mm. which is a direct sole plan, and also the Utah Higher Education Assistance Authority has some wonderful programs. So um, there are resources out there, and families should really look hard at what resources best fit their financial circumstances that then align to what's the right school for that particular student
5: is
0: is uh in in the back of your head, do you have a number that if every family could set aside um you know by by saving money uh through the lifetime of their child, what's that number? Do you have a number in your head of what just is a great little nest egg?
2: Well, you know what's really interesting it because it's so dependent on every family circumstance you say you know, just try to save as best you can. If $100 a month is within your budget, that's great. If it's $25 a month, I think sometimes people get caught on the idea that, well, um, I can't save enough to make a difference. And that's actually not true. Um, you can save enough to make a difference because in addition to the tuition, the room, and board, don't forget you need to buy books. There are some personal expenses. There's transportation. So any dollar saved now is actually going to defray or reduce the amount of debt that might be need to be borrowed in the future. So, again, the idea of you know, what's the number, uh, I think the number is really dependent on the family. And it's one of those reasons, frankly, why too many families put their head in the sand with this and say, I'm going to figure this out later. Mm -hmm. Well, then they wake up 10 years later, now their child's no longer crawling around, they're 10 or 12 years old, and they say, oh no, I'm about to go to high school, well, I'll wait a few more years and start saving then. When if they had started when that that child was a toddler, even $25 a week or a month or whatever they can afford, uh, their nest egg uh, can really grow pretty quickly, and we talk a lot about that early in the book. Uh, There's a, a chart in there called Don't Wait to Save, and it tells you if your child's one or five or ten and you save a certain amount each month and you have a certain return, here's how much you'll have at the end. And if you wait, how much more you're going to have to save in four years or five years or ten years from now. So, mm. again, I think it's really important to just put that discipline in place to to try to save something for college.
0: And, too, I think it, it forces a discussion where... Like we have, uh, our children have a, a missionary fund to go out on a mission for the church that we belong to, and they have, um, but to have a college fund, and then to have every time they make a dollar, they're putting so much money into these funds, and it creates a discussion when they're young about very value based things. We believe in serving the church, we believe in paying a tithing, we believe in going out uh, and going to school, and i mean it really is an opportunity to teach your kids about values and money
2: well that that's absolutely right and you made the point earlier uh, just about general concept and i think sometimes it's an overused uh, phrase about financial literacy you talked about how students let alone parents but i think again in 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 the situation where families are value-based and they're talking to their children very early about the value of money. We talk a little bit about this in the book as well, about even young children just counting money. They see you using your credit cards or your debit cards, or they watch you um, interact online. That's all part of the process of helping that child understand the value of money. And then by the time they're into the grades, uh, and they're able to save a little bit, and there are all different kinds of programs out there. Sesame Street has a three jar program, uh, where you save a little uh, for the future, spend a little mm-hmm. bit, and, and give a little bit. You know, all of those kinds of things are are absolutely critical to helping students have that foundation where they know that the dollar has some value to it, and they have to make choices about how they're going to spend that in the future. And mm. um, that becomes a really important uh, basis for much bigger decisions. For instance, which school can I afford? How much debt do I really want to take to put myself in a position to get that degree? Right, Those are all critical questions.
0: They are great questions. We're speaking with John A. Hupelo, who is the co-author of the book Plan and Finance Your Family's College Dreams, a parent step-by-step guide from pre-K to senior year uh, from the co-founders of Invite Education. It really is a powerful book. Almost every page, every other page at least, has a tip on it, Um, an actual real deal tip that that you as a parent could be uh, focusing on paying attention to, where to get the money, how to handle your financial aid applications, um, even ACT information, just... It's a, it's a really well-resourced uh, book. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion where we're going to get into uh, some of the actual plans, some of the, the uh, little tricks of the trade for how you can get your finance uh, organized so your family college dreams can take place. So stick with us, helping you learn more right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone is John Hupelo, who is the co-author of the book, A Parent Step-by-Step Guide from Pre-K to Senior Year. The book's titled Plan and Finance Your Family's College Dreams. And uh, John and his uh, co-author of the book, uh, P- uh, Peter Miserius, um, Dr. Peter Miserius, they've put together, I think, a really good uh I mean, it's it's a very all inclusive book, John, and I, I love how you start it with the dream idea because so much of going to school is a dream, and it almost feels like when kids have a dream of what they want to become and you can't afford it, that is just that's a sad nightmare versus the kids that uh, don't have the dream. So, talk to us about uh, some of the plans, some of the tools that we can use to actually make sure we are saving.
2: Yeah, Matt, thank thank you. And uh well, our goal with the book was to write a plain English guide because families are so overwhelmed, they, there's a lot of talk about what's happening and again, it comes up quickly somehow. We we all my girls are 22 and 20 and I remember what happened when they turned 15 and 16, all of a sudden you realize they're going yeah. to be leaving soon. Um and there's a big transition and you know, you're you're blessed in Utah with strong family values. Uh, and those family uh, values, though, uh, are really now Im- imparted in those children when they're about to-, to go off and do something like go to college. Right. a lot of families, it's a really shocking thing. But the the idea about planning early, uh, there are-, are really great opportunities out there to, to uh, plan for college from a financial perspective. Uh, The Roth IRA allows for some savings. There are U.S. Savings Bond programs, double E and E. Uh, The Coverdell Education Savings Accounts are for families with incomes under $110,000, and they allow for tax-free withdrawals. Uh, But at the top of the list and what usually works uh, best for most families are those 529 college savings plans. And I mentioned earlier uh, the Utah Educational savings plan and your listeners can find it at UESP.org. Uh, it's one of the, the finest programs in the, in the country. Uh, and the, the reality for families is that, as we said before, whatever you can save, you want to put it into uh, a savings program that you know uh, will work for you, has low fees, is flexible and the 529 plans are very flexible if the child doesn't go to college or there's money left over you can take those remaining monies and then transfer it to another child or yourself or any relative so um, you have that opportunity and the, the biggest win in all of this, and it comes from the fact that these are tax-advantaged accounts. So when you put the money in, you have those earnings over time. You're not paying any tax on those earnings, so it continues to accumulate. You're not paying Uncle Sam with your hard-earned dollars. Uh, you're paying back the student, in effect, giving them more uh, opportunity for the future. And then when you withdraw those funds out of those accounts, again, it's on a, a non taxed basis. As long as you use it for what they call mm. technically qualified educational expenses, but the expenses are, are broad—tuition, room, board, just about everything you'd imagine for school, including now computers—you uh, can use all those funds for those reasons and do it on, on a tax-free basis.
0: Do do you so set those plans, up? Do you have to set those up through an accountant? How does that
2: work? No, you you can go to uh, uesp.org and, and there's fill information there about how how to do that. Yeah, um, it's it's really uh, very flexible. You don't need any specialized expertise with this. Uh, there are many uh, different options um, under these plans that work best uh, for each uh, family. Um, what what's most important though um, is that uh, just starting to save. Um, literally, the the concept that we're going to have the discipline. Uh, to go in and and save on a consistent basis. Uh, this is a a flexible account. Uh, parents can open them. Grandparents can open them. You can actually provide gifts into them. Mm. They can print out a form. Uh, and then you know, for instance, again, a grandparent may want to uh, to give their grandchild a gift. Uh, they fill out a form. They they send a check uh, to to UESP and they send a little uh, certificate to this to the grandchild saying, "I just put some money in your college account." Oh, how great! Uh, so these are, are really powerful, powerful uh, savings vehicles.
0: Does um, I mean, and I guess along with that, so that's kind of the saving savings vehicle, the tool we can use. Plus, there's grants. There's uh, there's other ways you can do it. What are some of the the um, the tips you give us about finding the other money, finding the scholarship money, the grant money.
2: Yeah, you know, that is absolutely critical. And and the financial aid award letters are sometimes tricky because there's some free money in there, and then there's earned money in the in the uh, around the work study programs, and then there's also what they call aid, which are loans, which we all know is not aid. But to your point, the free money. I would start with the local resources. High school guidance counselors are absolutely terrific, hmm. identifying local opportunities. Uh, there are also um, search engines uh, for um, different scholarship opportunities at com, We have a search engine for scholarships, but there are others out there like FastWeb.com. Um, I would uh, encourage parents, and particularly students, uh, when, when there's an interest... An employer sometimes may have a program, uh, but really cast a wide net and think broadly about how you might be able to find this money. Use the online resources uh, definitely check in with the guidance counselor because they they've known they know where where students in those high schools have been successful in years past, and they'll help guide you to some free money
0: mm. If you have to end up uh you know borrowing and going in and, and doing some of the financial aid uh money. What are some of the common mistakes parents make when it comes to borrowing?
2: Well, the first um, mistake is uh, that the the, um, amount that they borrow is sometimes in excess of what's necessary. And it's important here to realize that there are student loans. So the student is the only and the primary obligor on those loans. So they're on the hook to make those repayments. They have uh, loans from the federal government called the direct loans. Uh, which they can get through their uh, colleges, Um, so they would specifically uh, be responsible for those repayments. And then there are other loans that that are parent-based loans. The federal government has one called the PLUS program, and then there are private lenders out there who are also um, offering those loans. And in in Utah there is a program uh, called the Complete Student Loan uh, offered by the Utah Higher Education Assistance Authority, and those are fixed-rate loans uh, from uh, the Utah not-for-profit student loan company. So I would I would check all of those. But again, the first uh, is overborrowing. And the, the tip, I, I think, which is most important is that students and, and parents should try to pay the interest on those loans while they're in school. And so what I mean by that, Matt, is that if I, I take a loan for $100 and I have a 5% interest rate, then I owe 5% interest. Um, while I'm in school, I should really try to make those interest payments uh, mm. because otherwise the lender will just add it on to the principal amount of the loan. So when I get out of school, uh, let's say it was just one year, in my example, I would owe $105 and have to start paying interest on that $105 rather than a lesser amount. So paying interest while in school and minimizing the amount of debt that we're taking for this college degree are the two most important tips that, that I can offer to families.
0: Because oh, a lot of times you get this idea that, yeah, you don't even have to pay on that money until you have a job. But, yeah, you don't, but the interest will accrue.
2: The, the interest accrues. That, that, that's exactly right. And the other point that I think is important that uh, I want to say that not all student loan debt is bad debt. Right. In fact, when students take debt and they come out of college and they have an, a, a responsible, affordable amount, it helps them build their credit record really quickly, and that's an absolute huge positive for, for the young consumer, if you want to think of them that way. Just out of college, making their loan payments on time, it makes it easier to get an apartment down the road to get a car and eventually a mortgage. So, uh, the student loan debt can uh, be used in a very positive way if it's used carefully and responsibly.
0: Um, One of the things too, I guess, to be paying attention to, and we just found uh, BYU made the list of one of the best values for your investment in education, um, just because the costs and the ability to get aid and other things, and then how much money you make coming out of school, is each, each school, each college, each university, also is is basically – it's part of the financial investment. You've got to make sure you're going to the right school that will get you the right return.
2: No no, no question about that. And when my girls uh, went through the process, uh, one of the um, really primary uh, concerns we had going in was, what what are you doing when you're going to get out? Are you think you're going to go to grad school, or do you think you're going to want to get a job? If you want to get a job, then let's go and talk about the Career Placement Center early. Let's talk about the alumni network. And I, I know BYU has a very strong yeah. alumni network, but all those are really critical to helping to maximize that value. On that education, no question about it.
0: And, and so, I, it's this whole thing. It's the it's the savings plans like the five twenty nine. It's the starting early to make sure we're investing early. It's borrowing, uh, thinking about the whole long term plan of of four years plus. Many times, it's the four year degree only leads to help you get a graduate degree. So, I guess you should also be factoring in if you're going to be paying for graduate school as well. It's it's a bunch of things that come together. And, and really, I, I guess it's complicated, which is why probably most people don't take advantage of your lessons.
2: Well, it's, and it's the reason we wrote the book, quite honestly, Matt, we, we think it's actually not complicated if you just set, sit back, uh, take a moment to think about what's important, um, line up your family values for what you can do on each of those. And, and when you really boil it down, there are only two questions That 12th grade families have to answer and that is can my child get into school of their dreams or into a a college that they want to attend and second can we afford it and all the rest around it is a bunch of process so if you understand the process you're not confused by the terms particularly in the financial aid world where there's a lot of jargon Uh, make sure you know all that early in the process and start in the ninth grade start in the 10th grade understanding what the financial aid process is for college and again, you don't need to spend hours and hours. Uh, the book outlines some of this in, in really uh, good detail, uh, but at a high enough level that it's understandable, written in plain English, and it's really meant to help families prepare themselves so they're not surprised when 11th grade comes around or 12th grade comes. Now they have a financial aid award letter, and they're saying to themselves, well, wait a minute, we we have all this paid for. And then when they dig into it, they find out it's really paid for because the school determined that we're just going to give you a bunch of loans, mm. and that's how we're going to tell you that this is affordable. Right. So there's a lot of preparation involved to try to take some of the complexity out of it, no question.
0: And as we, as we wrap up, are, is there any advice you'd give us as parents to prepare our children, uh, I mean our teens especially, to be more financially ready to not to go to to go there and take advantage of everything that's going on but not get sucked into getting into debt early.
2: Yeah, and that's a, a really uh, important point and I I think that the bottom line on all of it and the the succinct piece there is just try to have those conversations early. And the second point is, and we saw this in our family, by the time the, the the kids, I was going to say children, but they're not children when they're juniors and seniors in high school, they're also sort of flapping their wings a little bit. They're ready to leave the nest. And this becomes a, a really interesting uh, family issue. And if you lay the groundwork early, talk to them about being financially responsible. Uh, Many students today, and you talk to them, I have a great opportunity to talk to them all the time. Uh, They know what happened uh, in 2008 and 2009 around the recession. Uh, Kids are in high school now, uh, learn those lessons, and they are much more responsible. Uh, My own daughters didn't want to open a credit card because they were concerned about having credit card debt. And I talked to them about how you can actually use that responsibly to build a, a better future for yourself. Uh, so i i was uh, intrigued by your your opening uh, we talked about the tomato fight <laughs> yeah. and uh, i think that uh you know the the goal of our book was to make sure that uh we didn't uh, we didn't uh, bother our our children with the 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 detail and the mess around uh, uh, trying to get into a situation where they get in over their heads with with planning for college. We can help them, we can direct them, and hopefully uh, we can keep them so uh, they're not too messy when the the fight starts.
0: Right, right. No, great. Uh, I think wonderful insight. And, uh, John, we appreciate your time, your insight, your guidance. Again, uh, John Hupelo is his name, and he's the co-author of the book, Plan and Finance Your Family's College Dreams. It's a dream, folks, and in the end, it's a reality that produces more money. When you are a college grad, about a million dollars more is your earning capability versus not being a college grad. Uh, By the way, a dream for all of us, really, with our kids. We'll take a break, come back, wrap up this first hour or second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. So much to do, so much to do. Stick with us. We'll be right back.
5: You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. That's the music for the Health
0: Evangelist. He's here bringing the spirit of goodness and joy. Just get healthy, folks. Today, Dr. Ron Hager's back with us. He's an associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences at Brigham Young University. He's an expert in chronic disease prevention and is here today to talk about American Breakfast.
5: Mm. <laughs> you like your new song? Um, American? Yeah, that is a pretty cool yeah, song. That's, you're the uh, evangelist. Is that, we're going to get that every time? Every time. Wow. I'm look, looking forward to this more now than I know. ever. See, we used to call you Death Preventer. Yeah.
0: That was kind of like a dementor that was a n seemed more negative kind of a downer health evangelist <laughs> okay. and with that music you have us all tapping our toe it, so personally point. i'm a breakfast guy if i could choose anything i'd rather have an omelet
5: yeah well omelets are good just stacked with goo yeah, yeah especially if it's like a an omelet bar right they call it now yeah where, Where there's like 35 different things. You custom make it. You get to pick whatever Mm -hmm. you want on it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You don't get that very often.
5: No, you don't. And and when you do, it's hard to afford it. (laughs) (laughs) That's totally true. It's a buffet usually. It it seems like we talked about
0: breakfast cereals and um, we also talked about, you've talked to us forever about calories and how to watch your calories and don't drink your calories. Juices. There's a lot of juice people drink in the morning. That was sold to us for years that that's how you wake up.
5: Well, a lot of this has to do with marketing, totally. uh, Matt. And, you know, when you think of the all-American breakfast, and you can even go to certain restaurants and they have on their menu the all-American breakfast right. or the Grand Slam breakfast or whatever, you know, as if you – you know, in order to be an appropriate patriot, you know, you have to eat this kind of breakfast. Um, but in, in the 1920s, the Beech Nut Packing Company, a meat packing company, hired a man named Edward Bernays who in his obituary was called the father of public relations. And he was also Sigmund Freud's nephew, hmm. and so he had this idea of incorporating, you know, some of his um, uh, uh, uncle's uh, psychoanalytic uh, approaches with public relations, marketing, and advertising. And they hired him because they wanted their bacon sales to increase, and so <laughs> to so, protect their bacon. So, so Edward Bernays uh, went to the company's physician, and a lot of big companies they have an yeah. the in-house doctor. Went to the company's physician and he said, doesn't it make sense that after a long night's sleep without any energy intake that a hearty breakfast of bacon and eggs would be good for a person? Well, this physician, I mean, what's he going to sure. say? Well, of course he's going to say sure. I mean, I mean, he's working for the company, right? Right. So Edward Bernays says, well, would you please send a letter to 5,000 doctor colleagues and ask them uh, if they could support this as well? So this is research. Oh, brother. And so not all 5,000, but nearly 5,000 doctors report back and say, yeah, you know, that makes sense. Let's go with that. And so it started to hit the newspapers, the magazines, and other media outlets that physicians all across America – Suggest that for your health, after a long night's sleep with no energy consumption, a hearty breakfast of bacon and eggs would be good for you. This is where it came from. And nearly 100 yeah. years later, we still we buy all into buy it. And buy into it. And I see this all the time. I see uh, commercials on TV, in magazines, uh, heard on the radio, and uh, like, like a car commercial, for example. It used to be, and I remember the days when you listened to a car commercial or saw a car commercial, And it was all about the attributes of that car. Hmm. Now you can watch a car commercial and not a single thing is said about the direct attributes of the car. Right. It's all about that that feeling like. Yeah. It's all about the, you know, if you love your family, you'll have this car. Or if you want to impress your neighbors, you'll have this car, you know, or or whatever. And this is done with food now, too. Um, You know, and, and. you know, I talked to a woman not not too long ago, a mother, she told me that all she could get her 8-year-old to eat was uh, chicken nuggets. Yeah. And and she acted, you know, and sometimes they're in actually the shape of dinosaurs, which was always confusing. Dino nuggets. To me. Those yeah.
0: are those are incredible. Yeah.
5: Yeah. And so but she was concerned, you know, she she acted like if she didn't give her son what he wanted, he would starve to death. Right? Um you know, and and so then you might ask yourself, well, what's in a chicken nugget anyway? And uh, so I looked at some of the ingredients on the list and so in a chicken nugget depending on which brand you're looking at there's more than 30 different ingredients <laughs> in a chicken nugget many of which I couldn't even pronounce and more the nugget than the chicken yeah so 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 think about this too when it comes to this idea of you know thinking a little more about what you're eating um, recent data have shown that uh, the food and beverage industry that their marketing budget annually is seven billion billion dollars. Holy cow. Marketing. Okay. Marketing. Just to mar- marketing food and beverages, seven billion dollars. If you combine that with restaurant marketing, uh the total is over eleven billion dollars. Now who spends seven billion dollars marketing a product? Well a company that makes a hundred billion. Who's making a right. hundred billion. Exactly. Right? Because seven billion is a drop in the bucket. Totally. Now now think about the National Five-A-Day Program, and for those people who don't know what that is because you may not have ever heard of it because their marketing budget <laughs> isn't that much, right? it's an effort to get people to eat five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. There are uh, state initiatives for that as well as a national uh, initiative for that. Uh, the Fruit and Vegetable Campaign was allotted $4.8 million. Oh. Now, you compare $4.8 yeah. to $7 billion, That's and why. what is going to be in your head? Right, so so the idea here, I guess, you know, because you want you want to know, well, okay, so what do I do about all this? Um, well, th- think about this. You can never eat or drink enough of what you don't need, because what you don't need can s- never satisfy you. Okay, <laughs> it's true. So it's just a thought. It's just you, a, it's just kind of a party. That's a, crazy. A part good. But yeah. But, but how effective is this marketing from 1977 to 2002? Savory snack consumption in children increased 320%. Pizza consumption increased 413%. Candy consumption increased 180%. And vegetable consumption decreased 42%. Okay, when was the last time you saw an amazing advertisement or commercial for a vegetable Oh yeah, no. A, a whole vegetable. The only time you ever see it is when it's processed chip. by a company, yeah. and yeah. put in a box, mixed with other things, right. and it's processed in some way, and then it's sold to you because you there, there's there's no money really. That's in in, in, in whole in Whole Foods. Oh, see, so <laughs> that again,
0: Ron. You make a great point. We got to buyer beware. We got to figure out, and we we got to we just got to take our lives back. And that's why I love having you on um
5: okay so basic point use common sense common sense use common sense and and if it if it doesn't make sense a red flag should go up and you should ask some questions because i'm telling you the food and beverage industry they may say that they're concerned about your health but they have absolutely no concern right. for your health at all otherwise they would not be hiding All this data. All this data.
0: Great, great point. Dr. Ron Hager again, Associate Professor of Exercise Sciences in the College of Life Sciences at BYU. Thanks so much. We will take a break. Come back. Visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us.
5: You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show.
3: This is
0: the
1: Matt Townsend show.
0: Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend show.
6: Dr. Matt Townsend on
0: BYU Radio. BYU Radio. We do. We're so reactive that we all of a sudden will make a rule that is is useless. <whistles> <laughs> we're just going to we're going to just start making rules about whistles for example have you heard about this school that has banned playtime whistles as they are too aggressive you know for the for decades the end of a recess has been marked by a sharp whistle blown by whichever t- you know teacher was out on recess duty and uh, before anyone had ever thought about it you know we used to blow whistles and kids would just pay attention to the whistle and it worked right but St. Monica's Catholic primary school in England has done away with whistles. They're worried that the sound of the whistle might be too aggressive. <laughs> We're annoying. I feel aggressed. Yeah. Uh, children now have to watch out for the teachers putting their hand up. So now they just are constantly watching their teacher. And when she puts her hand up, that means, you know time to come in so what we wanted to do as a show is we wanted to put together some other sounds and and just test them out on the playground with a bunch of kids so we have a live video feed of a playground with kids uh this is Dilworth Elementary in Salt Lake City Utah look at the kids having so much fun let's just test a bunch of different uh sounds and see if any of these sounds get the kids attention like the whistle did, okay? Uh, what's the first sound, Ben? Okay, so an air raid sound. Nope, looks like the kids are still playing. Yeah, no. See, back in the 50s and 60s, that sound right there would have you duck and cover. But not not today. What's another sound here? Mm-hmm. Mario Brothers. Nope. Nope, they're still playing. Yeah, the kids didn't even hear that one. In my day, that would have shut everyone up, right? Uh, what other sounds we got? Hot pocket. Yeah, no. See, that would get me every time. The old yeah, hot I, pocket sound. Yeah, I was sound. pretty
3: confident with that one. That was
0: ah, nothing. Uh, any other sounds? Foghorn, which less you know. aggressive, but right. not very. But effective. if you're if you're a seaman, you know that sound, and you know you come in. Yeah, time yeah. to watch out for the shore. Any other sounds? Yeah, that one worked. Wow! A little
3: message from their iPhone.
0: Wow! See how they just shut right up.
3: I, I don't even know if they're still out there, but they—they're quiet. They went
0: reverend. I think they're all. Oh, they're actually, they're all checking their phones. <coughs> oh, wow! That's interesting. So, all we got to do, if you really want to control your kids, is just send them a message.
3: So, coordinate all of the parents to send messages.
0: Right. That's what they need It's just a mass email sent to everyone on the playground, and come they'll all come in. right in. You don't even need to raise your hand if you're the, the nun or the sister that's running the the primary school there. Don't raise your hand. Don't blow a whistle.
3: Air raid doesn't work. Mario Brothers fog, corn, none of that works. By the way, um, we should have done this before, but if anybody was aggressed by any of those sounds... Oh, that's true. Um, if, they felt, if they felt
0: attacked, if they felt uh, that it was... Um, that it was offensive, then then we should have given you a trigger alert to warn everybody that we were going to be talking about something like a whistle that is maybe too aggressive for them. Mm. Okay. Next time, Ben, make sure we always do a little trigger alert. Okay. (sighs) Good stuff, folks. Hey, we're here to help. We can't do everything, but we can find solutions to the schoolyard whistle. And we now know what it is. It's a very simple, you've got mail reply. You know. Once you hear
3: that, everybody f- loses focus and,
0: come on in, everybody. Oh, I thought I had a real message.
3: It's almost like the equivalent of tasing somebody, yeah, except no. without the electricity.
0: Right. It's a, it's a non-electrical tase.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: It's a tase of the mind. Just a stimulating. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. There really are a lot of tensions, stresses that you feel, don't you, in your relationship. And and some don't, right? They're just so happy and content not knowing how stressed their family is. But um I don't know. There, I think there comes a point for all of us where we need to to um to take our relationship and and like we were just hearing from Sheila Ray Gregoire and become more intentional in it and, and literally say, I'm going to grow this thing. I've had a really weird um, issue going on in my yard where I, I have a love-hate relationship with my yard, my, with my weeds, with my beds, my everything. And interestingly, the the yard starts to resemble my negative belief system. I don't, I don't like my yard. I don't like it and it doesn't look good. So it's now retaliating, except for here's the deal. This year, my wife somehow has been able to get me more involved in the yard, like the in the weeding and get me to become more a part of it. And I've noticed that as I've changed my view about it, that it's not just something to hate. It's probably my yard is something to work with, to understand and in certain places control Um then it makes my life a little bit easier. So as I get my boys up, uh, or my wife helps us all get up to go out and the weed, after doing that for a month, once or twice a week, you start to really make your yard look good. And you you, you start making a dent in the things that you didn't like. And it's just a shift sometimes A shift in your paradigm, a shift in your view about what you really – what you can do, what you should do, and what's what's working. And I just look at it like the same is true in our marriages. If at some point, instead of just sitting back and assuming that the yard's going to take us over and eventually destroy us, if I would just shift my view – in my marriage that my marriage isn't here to destroy me my marriage is here to be an additive part of my life to teach me certain lessons to give me some activities to do as well but to build something with someone else i can't control it it's not all up to me it's just it's just an opportunity to become better to be better and to um to be a little bit different so maybe if we see our marriage as as something that we can work on, something that we can improve, wow, all of a sudden you might grow something you can be proud of. Heaven forbid, you might even start living some principles that you can share with others. So one of the rules that I would or uh principles that I would try to live by and a thought that I would try to blow up if I could, is that lasting love shouldn't be this difficult. I'm a big believer that if, just like my yard, if I want my yard to look good, it shouldn't just be easy. It's difficult. Anything that's natural, like a relationship, they're difficult. It's hard to keep up. And if you let it go too far and let let it grow too too, um, wild, then all of a sudden you'll pay for it. And if you want to have a chance... To have a better approach to anything that's living, you got to understand why it is what – why it's doing what it's doing. We need to spend more time trying to understand why our spouses are the way they are. Um, I, I always think of the, the metaphor of um, there's so much pressure. There's so much intensity that can go on in a marriage from you know, the raising of children and the mistakes that can be made and the communication errors that happen and the misunderstanding, but the goodness and the closeness and the richness and the love and the forgiveness, all of that together creates a pretty intense experience. And it's almost like we think that, you know, that pressure is, is not good, but really that pressure creates the gems of our life and of our world. Um, diamonds are created under that pressure. Our our fine gems are created under such pressure. But it seems like many of us aren't trying to create that gem in our marriage by handling the pressure and managing it. It's almost more like we're just looking for gems. We want to go find the perfect marriage partner and marry that person, just like picking up a diamond off the ground and just not even realizing what it took to make the diamond. I think our responsibility here is with each other is to learn how to make beautiful gems and to turn a marriage that's full of pressure and perfect idyllic opportunities to create something beautiful and then we ought to create those beautiful things. Uh, One of my favorite um, just authors is Neil Maxwell and he said um, that this world is like a laboratory and the people in our lives are the clinical material. (laughs) Our relationships are the clinical material. So one thought... I feel that uh, I need to work on. I'm sure you might feel it as well. Is that lasting love shouldn't be difficult. It's it shouldn't. I mean, it, it should be difficult. Get used to that idea. It's not here to just be easy for you. It's not here to always be perfect. You need the imperfect times to make the gem. Um, another idea we need to blow up is that I know who my partner really is. And I hate to be uh, you know the negative Nelly here, but you have no clue who you're married to. <laughs> Uh, And by the way, neither do they. They don't even know who they are. Most of us aren't really good at identifying what we are and who we are and why we do what we're doing. Really, we're changing constantly. And every day, every new interaction, every new experience changes me. So you can be as frustrated as you want for why your partner does what they're doing. But before you try to just assume you knew them and now they've changed – why don't you go figure out why they're changing? Go figure out what is the draw for why they're, you know, moving away from being as religious as they used to be. Or why are they um, struggling so much, you know, at work and want to change their jobs so quickly? Don't just assume you wanted to be a lawyer since I first met you. Well, OK, I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. Go figure out why. Don't just argue that they should stay the same. Because the reality is we're here on earth to progress, aren't we? So if I feel a need to change, you you probably are going to have to help understand who I am and and not just – not only just freak out about it. Um, Pretty important thing and why I say that is I thought I knew who I was until we had a – my daughter had a grandchild uh, for me. She didn't have it for anyone else but me. Um, But it changed me. Honestly, my life changed the minute I became a grandfather because I thought I loved my kids, which I totally do, but I had a whole different purpose as a grandpa and it changed everything I thought my, my thinking became much more long-term. I got to be there to raise this girl and to be a part of her life. And I got to create more time in my schedule. All these things needed to change because of this one stage I'm going through. We all are going through these stages. So we're learning one way or another. We're learning. That's the goal of the show is to give you the tools you need when you need them so that you can live healthier, happier lives. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer and love stronger. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. You know, thanks to technological advancements, students can now access educational courses online. And the recent, uh, you may have heard, they're not necessarily getting the same quality of education. And with certain of these online programs closing, like ITT Tech closing, you may have heard of that. Some people are worried about the legitimacy of some of these online courses. So here to discuss with us uh, is the executive director of, a, of an organization called Quality Matters. Her name is Deb Adair, and she spent more than 25 years in higher ed in uh, faculty and administration, as well as nonprofit leadership. And today she's here to talk to us about uh, the, the, making sure we're getting the right education that's, that's credentialed so that we really can go get paid for the work we're doing. Deb Adair, thank you so much for being with us
1: thanks Matt, and thanks for having me on the program.
0: great to have you and talk to us about um, what what you're seeing in in these different programs there's so many ways and places people can go to get uh, you know technical skills to get other types of education become a coder and um, and yet not all of them seem to have the sa- or pull the same credentials and credibility as as we need. What are you seeing out there?
1: Well, I think these are um, um, good questions Matt and I think uh, uh you might be surprised to find that um sort of the the traditional mainstream universities and community colleges and you know state colleges uh research r one institutions all of them um, are, are many of them are actually, uh, heavily involved in online education. So it isn't the, um, when you think of online, you tend to think of a, you know, for-profit institutions. Uh, but f- for example, um, we are, as a nonprofit, we work with, uh, gosh, we have over a thousand fifty, uh, institutional members, that uh, uh, that participate with us and, um, about 990 of them are in higher education and these are institutions Hmm. and most of them are not are are not for-profit institutions but they represent you know the the two-year four-year mainstream institutions so there's a lot of activity uh, in online education and there's a lot of new activity along the lines of what you were just talking about the you know uh, coding academies and so on but um, some of the alternative learning is non-credit, and then sort of the the mainstream. If we if you could allow me to say traditional online education, yeah, um, you know that's for credit and has been happening for for years and years, and much of it is being done well.
0: Hmm. Is it because the the reality is this is the future, right? So online is where I think a lot of people are going to want to be turning, um, especially for the next fifty to a hundred years. It seems like uh, that there's as long as it's credentialed and as long as we know what we're getting and and that it's the highest quality that we can get, it it seems like the answer.
1: Well, yeah, I think I think what it's it's less about the the tools or the format you use and and more about um, really crafting whatever that the, the educational um, environment is. Uh, in a way that's consistent with the research on on student learning, and so we're learning how to do that in uh, much more robust ways in an online environment than we had in the past um, and I think um, you know to your point about the growth here, the reality is the what well, used to be the non-traditional learner, um, which was is you know anybody that's you know twenty five years old or older. Is actually the mainstream is the bulk of 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 uh, individuals seeking education today, and what's critical for them is that the you know having access and having the convenience that the you know the asynchronous online format provides so there's huge demand and you're you're right that we have to actually be meeting that demand in in thoughtful ways in ways that are, um, you know, where there's quality assurance and uh, uh, the execution of, of best practice and research. And so that's what our role is, is try to help disseminate that as we're, we're building and growing online programs in higher education.
0: And you're, I guess, a big part in the U.S., um, uh, an article in U.S. and World, we, we read that you are now part of a college pilot program um I guess making sure that in some of the pilot testing that they're that they're able to create these flexible online learning opportunities, but also to make sure that uh that that they're they're safe they're secure and that like you say they meet all the learning objectives is that is that what quality matters is is that the mission of your organization is to to make sure those standards are there
1: well, it's it's one of the ways we execute our mission. So our our mission is really to improve the quality of online education and student learning and to do that with the, the curation of research and evidence-based practice uh, and the setting of standards based on that. So um, and then we have professional development for educators and do and we do recognize and certify, quality. So we do, have, uh, we do review courses and programs according to standards, and we'll issue a certification for those courses and programs that meet those standards.
4: Hmm.
0: Is it, how would I know which, which programs I can trust the most? Is, is there a way as just a consumer, as a student getting ready to go to these organizations that I can make sure that they're up to quality?
1: Well, um, sure. And I think the uh, the very first thing is to make sure that the the program and the institution is accredited, and that's that's not through us, but it's through uh, re- regional and national accreditors. And so that there's that's a that's a broad review, right, to ensure that not just the uh, teaching and learning experience, but the whole operation of the of the institution is is credible. Um, and uh, and frankly, if uh, right now if you're pursuing a degree or, or taking courses from an institution that's not accredited, you're not going to be afforded federal financial aid. Mm. So that would be number one. And number two is, uh, you know, if you're looking at uh, for a differentiator, you can, uh, you, know, you can look for the Quality Matters Certification mark in, in, at the course level, um, and then uh, we're beginning to do that at the program level, level as well. And what that tells you is that there have been um, an unbiased team of three reviewers who have been trained to do this work who are actually, you know, educators in the field um, who are applying our standards in a particular way um, and then determining which courses and programs have met our standards. And if they have, uh, they are issued a a certification mark from us. Hmm. I mean, that's... sort of like the... Yeah, uh, you know, UL mark or something like that.
0: Yeah, Right. Yeah. So, you, yeah, they've gone through the laboratory, they've been evaluated, they meet the highest quality standards. And I mean, I guess that's the key, because I know so many people that um, that some type of, you know, technical skill or professional kind of development um, it's required, it's necessary. And then it but it seemed like a lot of the for profit organizations This just kind of turned into a big money-making opportunity for many of them, but the quality wasn't always where it needed to be. So to have a standard like QM, I guess, um, it seems like it's awesome. It's about time.
1: Sure. And I would be remiss if I didn't say uh, not all for-profit institutions uh, are are, are alike, and uh, we actually... um, from our earliest days, there's been there have been a few that have worked with us and have put their courses and programs to the same, this this you know the same rigorous standards as the nonprofit institutions. Um, but I think that they're always bad players, right? And, right. and it's important to be uh, vigilant about that.
0: I guess that's one of the keys you're saying is that um, to some degree, if they're if they're receiving student uh, funding or um, student loans from the government. Uh, then it is it's it's seen as at least a more credible uh, organization.
1: Well, you know you know that a, a certain set of standards have been applied and have looked more broadly, and they you know that they also look at marketing practices and business practices, and and actually where some of the uh, for profits have gotten in trouble is more on that side of it, right? And then um, we're very concerned in higher ed now about student outcomes whether they're graduating whether they're getting their degrees whether they're finding employment and um you know so so all of higher ed and particularly the for profit sector are being scrutinized for that now
0: hmm. and but yours and yours even takes it to a different level because yours is more of a quality matters is more of kind of a faculty centered peer reviewed process right so maybe walk us through your process how do you go into let's say i have a a training uh, program, or a, a development, or a uh, skill building program. I'm at a university, but I want the QM standard. How do you come in? What do you do to make sure that uh, I'm at the I'm at the right level?
1: Okay, so uh, and Quality Matters can do. We can do this as ourselves, or uh, there are, uh, we can work with an organization to help them set up the process hmm. to do that themselves, but. So the uh, the review process uh, involves three trained and certified uh, uh, individual educators, uh, and these are all um, in the field. And so there aren't there aren't any QM employees that do this. These are these are faculty. These are educators who have gone through the the rigorous training from us to get certified. Uh, one of them has to be a subject matter expert at a minimum. Um, At least one, and usually more, have to be external to the institution whose course is being reviewed. Uh, And there's a senior, there's a chair of that review team who is a a senior reviewer, master reviewer with uh, more experience in training. And they are charged to take the student perspective. So they go into the course as if they were a student, but what they're doing is they're applying our 43 uh, standards to the course as they, as they uh, review it and look through it, and um, they each give detailed feedback. I think the, the, um, the magical piece of this is each of those faculty members is give, are giving very detailed feedback about uh, um, you know, ways to improve the course mm-hmm. and you know, what were the strengths of the course, and that's all provided back to the developer of that course, the faculty member or the institution. Um, uh, to go to continue to improve that course, whether or not it met standards.
0: Wow, yeah, what a great idea! So, so really, you could get—it's almost like the TQM total quality movement yeah. of businesses, right? Where we you would you'd go train and certify people on your teams to be the quality assurance person, and once they're certified, and we, then our goal would be to just reach those high levels of total quality.
1: That's right, and that's why it's scalable for institutions. It's great. That they get their faculty trained, and, uh, and then they can begin to embed this in their ent- all throughout their operations.
0: And I guess this can this can take place in K through 12, higher ed, just you know technical trainings. It can be even in just continuing and professional ed. It could be in any Absolutely. field.
1: Absolutely, and those are all the the places that we're that uh, you know we're working in, and uh, you know K twelve is in a different place regarding online learning than higher ed, but uh, it's growing there as well. So it is a it's a replicable process, and
0: right? it's not just it's not because it, cause some would say, well, yeah, but uh, learning is very subjective, and it, and it's not just objective; it's also subjective, and it I guess this process allows the subjective side of teaching, right? I mean, the reaching of the child's emotions and the management of the students. I mean, I guess it can reach all the complexities of
1: learning. All right, well, you know, you don't want, what you don't want is cookie-cutter courses because right. you're applying a set of standards, right? So it has to be, there's there's an art here, too. So there are many ways uh, a course can meet these these standards. And remember, the standards are really an attempt to take from the research literature and, you know, evidence practice what we mm-hmm. know works and make it applicable. So what, what we're trying to do is to, uh, you know, we know some things about uh, how students learn and trying to change how we structure our, our education and courses to embed that and make sure that happens. That's really what we're trying to do. Yeah. And I think we are we're seeing evidence, right, that we are moving that needle because courses have improved over the last 10 years.
0: Absolutely, and I love just the fact that we're talking about it. We're speaking with Deb Adair from the organization qualitymatters.org, helping us create a higher level of quality in all of our teaching, in all of our programs. And imagine that uh, you can go in now and, and have quality be assessed in the programs and make sure that you have people that are constantly tweaking the programs at your universities at your trade schools and your online programs taking them to the next level bringing in the best learning about education and uh how people learn powerful stuff we'll take a break come back continue discussion find out what you can do as a parent to uh to get involved if you want to be a part of this as well stick with us this is the matt townsend show helping you learn and live longer stick with us Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Deb Adair. She is uh, from the organization QualityMatters.org, Matters, which is uh, a, an organization whose goal is to help improve the quality of our educational system. And basically, they provide quality uh, coaching, uh, quality training, and um, Kind of an an improvement process so that your your uh, educational facility can bring in and certify people from your organization to then ensure the quality of your teaching is at the highest standard. They base it on research, on student learning and on the quality. It's something they do all through corporate America as a process called TQM where you can train people uh, to be really um, educated and skilled in, in building and evaluating the quality of your widget and your systems in corporate America. So why wouldn't it work in the, in the educational world as well? And then on top of that, produce uh, and, and make sure it's all centered around some of the greatest research and the students are actually learning, heaven forbid. Powerful stuff. Uh, we welcome you back, Deb. Thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thanks, Matt. I'm happy to be
0: here. It's a it's a complicated thing because uh, I mean I guess is this is this whole idea of quality um, assurance and quality focus is it has it not always been a focus at universities and in in our educational system?
1: Well, that's a that's a loaded question. So <laughs> let me just say uh, uh, I think I, I think this the. Uh, uh, you know, quality uh, uh, looks. Uh, you know, it can be defined in many, many different ways. And I think, of course, uh, you know, we've always been concerned about quality, but trying to be uh, specific about what is the, what does the student experience look like, and 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 being very specific about um, about about student learning and what that looks like, and and particularly for faculty who, by and large, you know, um, uh, come into higher education, come into the faculty role without really having training in pedagogy, without really having any, any training in um, how to teach. Hmm. Although that, that's changing now in, in, um, in graduate programs and the like, but I would say still the majority of the faculty working today haven't had that background. And so that's sort of what they're getting when they go through our professional development and specifically when we ask them to review according to our, our standards. And so what one of the kind of interesting and very positive but unintended consequences of our, of our process and using faculty as reviewers is uh, the data that we're, we're collecting as a result is they're all telling us that um, this was the – the best professional development that they've had is the ability to go in and review a peer's course and apply, you know, learn how to apply these standards. And that they are going back, the reviewers, the faculty reviewers are going back, and they're making changes to their face-to-face courses. So, you know, we have this assumption that our face-to-face, regular traditional courses are the gold standard. But we've not was not applied to uh, um you know standards to that mm-hmm. in the past not not the same kinds of standards and so on a individual basis the faculty who are participating in this are saying, "Hey, you know, this has informed my practice in my face-to-face class, and and we're, you know, we're making improvements across the board."
0: And just, I, I can just see just the best practices, just seeing how other teachers do this, and having a focus on quality and making sure the student experience is there. I mean, plus the corrections would come from your own faculty teams, not from external reviewers, right? I mean, it's it's your sure. it's your own. It's it's your own self-improvement. I think that's – I think it's powerful. And I've, I've seen it work extensively in corporate America. I just um, – I, I guess it, it makes so much more sense in a teaching setting, I think, um, especially if there's a good camaraderie and a kind of a collegial spirit about it. Um, as we wrap up, what would you say is the one thing that we could do, Deb, as parents, as um, just concerned, you know, students at some of these organizations, if we want to See if we can improve quality by doing a similar process
1: uh, so so I think it's a it's um, you know asking questions about not just not just the um, you know the course itself right in terms of of you know the the standards and the quality experience there but but uh actually uh, ensuring especially if you're interested in doing this. Online is how is the institution set up to support online students, and uh, you know, to ask a set of questions to be a savvy consumer. You know, if you're going to be taking courses remotely, what are the what are the processes and practices by which they're assuring quality? How do they support you as a remote learner with? You know, academic support and tutoring and, and technology support, and is that available 24 7? And so it really is, is uh, I think, as consumers, as parents, as students, you need to actually um, to ask or question or demand that, that that support be there if you're going to invest your time and your money into um, education.
0: I love it. I really do. And, um, man, I think it's about time. I mean, they've always worried about quality, like you said, but I think also in the end, man, having a having a process, a, a way to facilitate it, even better for everybody. We'll take a break. Continue the discussion. Again, that's Deb Adair. Go to her website, qualitymatters.org, if you're interested in uh, having this brought into your organization, your uh, system of higher education Your K-12 ed Whatever you got going on Your online programs Powerful We'll take a break Come back Continue the discussion This is the Matt Townsend Show Friends To the Matt Townsend Show, Dr. Matt here. Hey, uh, we promised you earlier a a crazy story about a woman arrested for stealing a french fry from a D.C. cop. Right? I mean, so imagine you're a police officer and a guy steals... uh, You're sitting down to dinner and a woman comes up and just steals your french fries? What? What do you do with that? I mean, we already have enough... uh, Enough problems, right, going on out there with our police officers, and they're trying their best to integrate and to help the the people in society to get through their tough days. And then you sit down to lunch, and a woman steals your fries. So what do you do about that? Well, we decided we're going to call the police officer. His, his name is Officer Hobbs, and uh, he's from the northwest D.C. area. He, um, he's on the phone with us, and I wanted to just pick his brain about what he decided to do with this woman. Uh, Officer
4: Hobbs, are you there? Yes, sir. Thank you for having me on the show, Matt.
0: You bet. Thank you for being on the show. Um, what a weird situation. You're just sitting there trying to have a good dinner a good, at a restaurant, and uh, maybe just tell us tell us what happened.
4: Absolutely. So I was sitting in a boot. I was reading my Calvin Hobbs. When the uh, perp approached me and began engaging in conversation, you know, I like my private time, but I was uh, willing to indulge her for a bit. Um, It was at this point that she reached across the table and stole a french fry from my tray, and I asked this individual to cease and desist her activities. And uh, from there, the situation only escalated as she continued to steal my french fries. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I shouldn't laugh. I mean, this was uh, this, this, this was apparently pretty offensive to you. How, how many fries did she end up taking, officer?
4: Uh, you know, all said, she stole about three French fries. Uh, but she was attempting to abscond with the remaining fries. Uh, unfortunately, I had left my handcuffs in my police vehicle. However, I was able to restrain her with a couple of uh, tied-up soda straws.
0: <laughs> oh, so you you fastened the soda straws as a cuff for her.
4: Yeah. Well, we, from time to time we have to make makeshift uh, handcuffs.
0: Yeah, little MacGyver moment. I mean, I'm not trying to diminish it, officer, but um, you you you've eventually arrested. So she she was arrested then for uh, taking, I guess, three fries.
4: That is correct, sir. Yes.
0: Um. Was was any? I mean, was anyone hurt? Was was anyone hurt in this situation? Uh,
4: you know, not really, Matt. Uh, things did get a bit messy as she struggled to free herself. Uh, her head went crashing down into the ketchup cup, but uh, then backup finally arrived. Uh, at which point, I escorted the perp back to police headquarters, where she was charged with second degree threat.
0: Hmm. So. Um, you know, I, I read the police report uh, that the property stolen was listed as, as French fried potatoes. Correct. Um, I, I didn't know that sneaking a few spuds was was a punishable offense, something that you could arrest somebody for.
4: Uh, it, it most definitely is, Matt. Uh, that's actually a quote 199, possession of stolen fried goods. Uh, you know, property is property. The law is no respecter of property.
0: Uh, um. Yeah, so there there actually is a code 199, huh, that's possession of stolen fried goods? That's correct. Huh. Uh, I, I wouldn't have guessed that, uh, that this was such a frequent occurrence that you'd actually need a police code for it.
4: Matt, if I had a dime for every time this sort of thing happened, I could retire today, to tell you the truth. I, just a few minutes ago, I got a report on a man taking a swig of an officer's chocolate milkshake, Ooh. And uh, if you've ever tasted a chocolate milkshake, you know that that would—that's a crime.
0: Wow, what uh, what would have happened if she had if she had made off with the rest of your fries and, and maybe your shake?
4: Well, you know, the punishment probably would have been about the same. Tell you the truth, though, uh, she's lucky that those were not waffle fries. If they were waffle fries, the punishment would have been much more severe.
0: <laughs> really? Are you serious?
4: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, it's it's all about ounces, Matt. Really. For instance, if you were to steal a steak fry, that's the equivalent of like three regular fries. But if you steal a waffle fry, that's that's got to be six or seven fries easily, right there. Wow,
0: I didn't I didn't realize this was that serious of a of a deal. Um, well, uh, Officer Hobbs, we appreciate you uh, appreciate your good work out there and uh, keeping the fries on the plate. Um, thank you so much for being with us.
4: Thank you. I just want to put the message out there that uh, we take this thing very seriously and we do not uh, mess around. So just keep your hands to your own fries.
0: That's a great point. Uh, very good point. Uh, anyway, great. Uh, appreciate you, Officer Hobbs. Thank you so much. We're now going to turn the time over to one of our great producers. Leanna Tan going to be talking about uh, not fries because that's not everyone's problem. Her case is roommates.
6: So, I'm always looking for ways to live a happier, healthier life. And then, the other day, I ran across some articles talking about the importance of having a good relationship with your roommate. Huh. Yeah, they said that a bad relationship could lead to a college life of seclusion, dreading to go home, have lower grades, higher stress, depression, anxiety.
5: Felix Unger was asked to remove himself from his place of residence. Can two divorced men share an apartment without driving each
6: other crazy? I read some articles that said, in order to build a successful roommate relationship, I needed to keep the lines of communication open and address potential problems to get them out in the open so that there will be fewer surprises down the road. It advised me, take some time to talk about our habits and preferences, and said... It is extremely important to get to know what kind of person your roommate is before you decide to live with them.
5: can't take it anymore, Felix. I'm cracking up. Everything you do irritates me.
6: And I started to get really nervous because I didn't remember having this sort of talk with any of my roommates before. You're not
5: here. The things I know you're going to do when you come in irritate me.
6: In fact, I didn't even know my roommate before I moved in with her. What if I have scarred past roommates for life without even knowing it? Some days I feel broken son, but I won't admit What if I'm scarred for life without even knowing it? What if I'm forcing my roommate into a life of seclusion? Death. Then, I came across this article that has a list of questions that I'm supposed to ask my roommate before moving in. And it says, if you have already decided on a roommate and forgot to ask them these questions, don't worry. You can still bring them up now. Phew! So, of course, I took immediate action and brought in my very own roommate. Hello, I'm Callie Gardner. And you know that she's a true roommate when I walk in every morning blasting Christmas music in September and she doesn't even care. I trust you a lot because I sleep underneath your bunk bed every night. Can
2: we turn our beds into bunk beds? You'll give us so much extra space in our room. Please say yes. You don't need permission from us to build bunk beds. You're adults.
6: With the knowledge that at any moment, that could literally come crashing down on me and yep. pierce through my flesh. I don't know how much closer we could get than bunk mates, but for the sake of your current and future mental well being, I think we need to have a talk.
5: Come and sit down, son. We need to talk.
6: I found on this website, society19.com, that there are a few questions that I should have asked you before we roomed together. What? Do you have any allergies? Uh. So I used to be allergic to fruit loops and scooby doo Frets. Fruit snacks. Ah? A shaggy snack? Yes. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I had no idea you had an aversion to Froot Loops and Scooby-Doo's fruit snacks. I'm here for you. What temperature do you like the room? Well, that depends on how many clothes you're comfortable seeing me wear. <laughs> Probably cold hey. air is better. I think we should save on utilities, so let's do. Cold. Okay, let's just not use the heater during the winter. At okay. All. How will we break up the chores of the room? So are you gonna clean my laundry, or do I have to do that? I, there's that one time I folded your laundry. That time you took it off the drying rack and you <laughs> stuck it on, it on bed. my bed. Work, 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 work. It's a me, be work, work, work. Are you going to clean off my desk? Because I'm not going to clean off desk. I know desk. that all the mess is really my side of the room, but we need to split up the chores somehow. So. You know, I mean, I have a lot of chores to do. Cleaning yeah. my desk, vacuuming the floor, making my vacuum? bed. Four. Don't be embarrassed of this next question, but it's very important for my health and well-being. Do you smoke or vape? What? <laughs> What kind question is that? I'll take up smoking and give that up. Good for
2: you, son. Have a dollar.
6: But he didn't do anything.
2: Hey, wait a minute. He didn't.
6: Ooh, I don't. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> how do you feel about sharing? Well, you've borrowed one of my shirts. More than one. More than, than one, yeah. I mean, so how... How many of your clothes can I t- I mean can I take them? Deal stuff. It's an exchange thing. <laughs> I-, I think that oh, it's know. nice to to know just that you're using, you're using them. I'm glad that you're okay with sharing because I'm really I'm really open at taking. I prefer you didn't use my deodorant. Oh, so was it bad of me to use your toothbrush? Is that oh no? Well, that is a load off my conscience. Now, if my roommate flunks out of school or goes into depression, at least I'll know it wasn't due to my lack of open communication. So, everyone, save you and your roommate the mental scarring and ask them these five simple questions. They will open your eyes and take your relationship to a whole new level. You think this may be trivial, but think about the extended wardrobe and extra laundry folder you'll be losing if you don't. Happy heart to hearting. Well... I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent.